Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today for this month's deep dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. On this month's episode, we are going to be talking about everything that is lumbar punctures. We will discuss the indications, the contraindications, and the complications of the procedure. Then I will share a few of my personal keys to success when performing the procedure. And finally, we will end by answering the age-old question, that is, when to CT before LP. But before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Pearson Rabbits is my own personal disability insurance broker. Stephanie Pearson at Pearson Rabbits is a former practicing OBGYN who unfortunately suffered a career-ending injury while delivering a baby from one of her patients. As she could no longer practice medicine, she sought recourse through her disability insurance policy, but ran into a complex legal battle due to the wording of her disability insurance policy. She started Pearson Rabbits with the goal of preventing other healthcare providers from having to go through the same battles with insurance companies as she had to. The key for preventing this from happening is to obtain own occupation disability insurance, which is precisely what Pearson Rabbits specializes in. Schedule a consultation appointment with Pearson Rabbits today at www.pearsonrabbits.com and be sure to mention EM Clerkship when you do. Now, back to our episode. So let's talk about lumbar punctures. This is one of my favorite procedures in emergency medicine. In my opinion, the satisfaction of the CSF dripping out of the spinal needle into those little clear plastic tubes is rivaled only by a couple other procedures in our specialty. So to begin, let's start by talking about the indications for lumbar punctures. Now, to lead this section off, I want to share a quote from one of my attendings in residency that has stuck with me. A lumbar puncture is almost never considered an emergent, life-saving procedure. That is, 99.9% of the time, you are performing a lumbar puncture for diagnostic purposes and not for therapeutic purposes. If you are unsuccessful in obtaining CSF, you can still just treat the patient for the underlying condition that you are concerned about, and the LP can be performed later under imaging guidance. Now, this doesn't mean that LPs aren't important to perform in a timely manner. They certainly are. If CSF is obtained too far in the future after antibiotics are given in a case of suspected meningitis, the patient is possibly committed to receiving the full course of parental antibiotic therapy for presumed meningitis regardless of the CSF results. There have been a few decent studies on the topic, and consistently it has been found that the longer time between antibiotic administration and CSF collection, the more normal the CSF results will look. For example, after about four hours, the CSF culture will likely become sterile, and the CSF glucose and protein levels will begin to normalize, with near-complete normalization occurring at the 12-hour mark. However, CSF white cell count tends to be unaffected by antibiotic administration, at least in the first 12 to 24 hours. So, what you should take away from this is that lumbar punctures are never life-saving, but they are very important. And with that out of the way, Let's talk indications. There are a few conditions in which CSF studies are required in order to confirm diagnosis. Pause the episode for a second. How many can you name? I can think of at least four. Number one, 
diagnosis of a CNS infection, such as meningitis or encephalitis. Number two, diagnosis of a subarachnoid hemorrhage via the presence of xanthrochromia when initial imaging is negative, but clinical suspicion is still present. Number three, diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And number four, diagnosis and treatment of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, also known as pseudotumor cerebri. This is the rare situation where an LP can be therapeutic, and I would consider performing a therapeutic lumbar puncture if I was concerned for IAH and the patient had objective neurologic deficits on exam. Those are the four big indications for lumbar puncture in the ED. Now, contraindications. In general, these terms can be boiled down to any cause of increased intracranial pressure, anything increasing risk of bleeding, or anything increasing the risk of iatrogenic infection. More specifically, there are five contraindications you should know. Number one is the presence of a space-occupying lesion with mass effect, such as a tumor or an Arnold Chiari malformation. Number two is coagulopathy with an INR of 1.5 or greater. Number three is thrombocytopenia. Now, some sources say less than 50K is a contraindication. However, new data is showing less than 20K is a contraindication, and lumbar punctures performed with a platelet count between 20 and 50K are safe. Number four, concern for cellulitis overlying the lumbar puncture site, or concern for spinal epidural abscess. And number five, traumatic injury to the location of the LP, e.g. a lumbar spine fracture. Now, when it comes to patients on anticoagulants who you need to perform a lumbar puncture in, the decision to perform LP or delay is quite nuanced based on the exact anticoagulant that the patient is taking, the time of the patient's last dose of anticoagulant, and the results of the patient's labs. There is no one-size-fits-all answer here, and this topic is way too nuanced to dive into on this episode, so just recognize that this is a gray area. Complications. It is very important that you do not forget to consent the patients on the complications of the procedure. I'll give you guys my personal spiel. So I break up complications into two categories. The first category is complications known to every medical procedure that we perform. And the second category is complications specific to the procedure that we are doing today. The complications of every medical procedure include pain, bleeding, damage to nearby structures, need for further procedures, disability, plus or minus death. And there are a few complications that are specific to lumbar punctures. The first, which is the most common, is a post-puncture headache, which may require a second procedure down the line, known as a blood patch, to fix it. Anywhere between 5 and 20% of patients will develop a post-lumbar puncture headache. The second complication is known as a spinal hematoma, which can lead to permanent paralysis and can be devastating, but is pretty rare. I've never seen this occur in clinical practice in my experience. And number three, which is extremely rare, is brain herniation, which shouldn't happen if we adequately assess for findings of increased intracranial pressure prior to performing the lumbar puncture. And lastly, when consenting patients for lumbar punctures, I always specifically consent them for failure. Doing a lumbar puncture blind will never be 100% surefire, and setting realistic expectations up front will go a long way if you are unsuccessful in performing the procedure. Next, let's talk about the procedure itself. 
A lumbar puncture can be performed with the patient either sitting upright, bent over in a scared cat position, or it can be performed with the patient lying on their side in the fetal position. If measuring opening pressure is of importance to you, such as in idiopathic intracranial hypertension, you must proceed with the patient in the lying position. I personally use the sitting position as much as possible, as I think it is easier to align the patient properly. The direction of the bevel is also somewhat important to reduce trauma while performing the procedure. The way I think about it is that the bevel should be pointed in such a way that it is always facing the patient's mid-axillary line. So if the patient is upright, the bevel should be facing either left or right. And if the patient is lying on their side, the bevel should either be facing the floor or the ceiling. Now, everyone has their own little tricks for how they perform procedures. What I'm going to share with you is not necessarily the best way to do it, so to speak. It is just how I personally found success in my own experience performing lumbar punctures. So my first tip is positioning. Positioning is everything. Positioning will either set you up for success or cause you to fail. I first have the patient sit at the edge of their stretcher with their feet on a stool in front of them. You want to align the patient's shoulders and their hips so that each joint is kind of like a corner on a rectangle. That's how I think about it. Once positioned, I have the patient bend forward and lean on a mayo stand. I also ask the patients if they've ever seen a scared cat before. You know how they kind of stick out and arch their back in the air when they're scared? That's what I try to have the patients do, and that's how I coach them through it. Sometimes I'll even pull up a picture on my phone from Google showing them exactly what I mean. Now, if they do not have good anatomic landmarks because of body habitus, the last thing I will use to help me is ultrasound to find my landmarks. Once the patient is positioned, I draw two imaginary lines. One vertical line across the course of their spinous processes, and one horizontal line connecting the two posterior superior iliac crests. Where these two lines intersect should be right about at the L4 spinous process. And then I mark one space above this intersection, corresponding to the L3, L4 space, and one space below this intersection, corresponding to the L4, L5 space. Then I personally grab an empty 10cc syringe and push it into their back while withdrawing on the plunger hard, holding it for maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds. This will leave a nice bullseye target for you that will not wash away when you're cleansing the skin prior to the procedure. My second tip has to do with finding the subarachnoid space. Now, I personally have never felt a pop when entering the subarachnoid space. So, my strategy is essentially to insert the needle until I hit bone. If I don't hit bone and the needle keeps advancing, I know I'm either in the space or lateral to it. Ideally though, I hit bone. This tells me that I'm aligned correctly horizontally and I just need to change my vertical alignment. I will then withdraw the needle maybe one centimeter, change my vertical angle of entry ever so slightly, and reinsert the needle. While reinserting the needle, I pull the stylet out every one millimeter of advancement to check for CSF. Yes, this slows me down and is painfully slow. I often remove the stylet 10 to 30 times before I successfully obtain CSF. But being thorough and methodical about this helps me make sure 
that I'm not overshooting or undershooting. And those are my personal tips for success. Now, finally, we've arrived to our last discussion point, the age-old question, when do I have to CT before LP? One could argue that you should always CT before LP just to be safe, but studies have shown the delay to obtaining CSF and the delay to antibiotics is definitely clinically significant, and we should only spend the time CTing if absolutely necessary. Now, lucky for us, the Infectious Disease Society of America has published guidelines of when you should be obtaining a head CT before LP. There are six situations where you should obtain the CT before LP. These six situations are, number one, patients with an altered level of consciousness, number two, patients with a focal neurologic deficit, number three, patients with new onset seizures within the past week, number four, patients with a history of CNS disease in the past, such as a brain mass, number five, patients who are immunosuppressed, such as patients with HIV, patients who have organ transplants, etc., and number six, patients who have papilledema on fundoscopy exam. You can always look these up if you forget, as the list is kind of long, but the way I remember it is anything that makes you suspicious of increased intracranial pressure will require a CT before LP. Okay, woo! That was a lot. Let's summarize quickly. First, indications for lumbar puncture. CNS infection, subarachnoid hemorrhage, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Contraindications for lumbar puncture. Space-occupying lesion with mass effect, thrombocytopenia and coagulopathy, cellulitis overlying the LP site or concern for epidural abscess, and traumatic injury to the spine. The complications for lumbar puncture include post-lumbar puncture headache, spinal hematoma, and brainstem herniation. My personal advice for performing lumbar punctures? Positioning is everything. Use ultrasound if necessary, and check for CSF early and often. And finally, when to CT before a lumbar puncture? Essentially, altered mental status, focal neurologic deficit, new onset seizures, known CNS lesions, immunosuppression, and papilledema. And that is all I have for y'all today. Send me emails with feedback, mike at emclerkship.com. Thanks again to our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits Insurance, and until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.